I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going to hear from Charles Eisenstein, Tomas Hubel, Cynthia Jures, and Bayo Akomalafe coming together at the 2019 SAND conference to share some of their insights into facing our current global crises. This is the gathering of the people, almost echoing the gathering of the people in a time of trouble when there isn't a clear way forward. Maybe when forward movement becomes impossible, we ask, where is the power? Where do we go? What does it mean to be clear about who we are, what we do, What kinds of questions do we ask? Of course, this isn't new. This isn't an invention of mine or my father or or even my people. It's part of the deep intelligence of the earth. And it's an invitation to, to notice the indeterminacy of power. There's a beautiful story, a biblical story that I like. And it's, uh, it's about Samson. Um, You guys know Samson, right? Samson is making his way to a place called Timnah. And on his way, he uh, encounters a lion. And he kills the lion. And he continues on his path. On his way back, he finds, quite surprisingly, that the lion's carcass has been swarmed, you know, is now filled with bees and honey. And he notices the irony, the beautiful, miraculous irony of that moment. And he poses a riddle to people who he encounters later when he says, out of the strong proceeds the sweet. And that riddle resonates for me right now as I want to offer a libation. And the riddle is this, that maybe in the um, most shadowy places, there might be a glimmer of hope. Maybe in the most hopeless places, maybe in Auschwitz, maybe on a slave ship, there might be a burst and a glimmer of light and life and abundance and generosity. Maybe in this gathering of the people, with not knowing where to go, in our deep confusion, there is a power that has no words, no language, no easy reference point, and yet we are saved by that. We are embraced by that. So out of the bitter proceeds the sweet. 
out of the shadows proceeds light. Out of not knowing where to go might be some sense of direction. Perhaps as we gesture forward as a people, we might find wisdom that we have no algorithms for at the moment. And so I offer this libation. So I will be pouring just a little into the soil. And as it pours, I offer this prayer that may our roads be rough and may the disturbance be our sanctuary. May your roads be rough and may the disturbance be your sanctuary. May your roads be rough and may the disturbance of that which is greater than you be your sanctuary. Ashe. I have this theory that climate activism is not actually driven by fear of the terrible things that are going to happen to us. That the basic energy underneath it is grief, is beauty and loss. That why I became an environmentalist was through an experience of beauty and loss. And that most people carry that with them. A place maybe that you loved when you were young that's been paved over, uh, or a species that's gone extinct, or some damage that's been done to the external landscape that mirrors a wound to the internal. Stella, my wife, took me to the seashore where she grew up, and I was impressed. I'm like, wow, this is really beautiful. Look at these tidal pools with the algae. And she said, when I was a kid, it wasn't just algae. There were sea anemones. There were eels in that pond there. There was so much life. There were seashells everywhere. There were horseshoe crabs. And it's almost all gone. You know, we shared that moment of grief. And so I wonder if maybe any of you have just a little mini story, like I just told, of grief, of beauty, something that was beautiful that is lost now. And you don't have to connect it to climate change. But something in the beyond human world, an experience of beauty and loss. Like for me, what came to mind was this path at the edge of the neighbor, the wilds at the edge of the neighborhood that when I went and visited later, they were developed, paved over, gone. But if I close my eyes, that path is still there. And it's made an imprint on me. And I would like to offer, maybe like 10 or 15 people can sit, not tell the story, but just name the being that's been lost to do it honor. So I would say, the wilds at the edge of the neighborhood. That will be my invocation. And if you feel moved to invoke this being, then please bring it into the space just as you are moved. A giant uh, 100, 200-year-old ficus tree on my street. The love that once provided me a false sense of fullness and security. My original innocence. Apple orchards. The monarch butterflies that used to come every summer in my home in Denver. Native forest and crown land in Australia. 
the frogs outside my classroom window. San Francisco, 50 years ago when I moved here, with no tall buildings and no smog. Playfulness and joyfulness from my childhood. Calling friends and family on their landline or just going to their house. The opportunity to have relationship with the first peoples of the territory that I grew up on. The vitality and glowing aliveness of the Yuba River and Deer Creek. 10,000 acres of sugarcane fields in Hawaii. The loss of a wilderness island with no stones where granite riprap has been dumped for a causeway. Google, Facebook, and eBay now in place of my small town in outside Dublin and Ireland. Valley of Hearts Delight, San Jose, California. The glaciers in Glacier National Park. Direct relationship to the animals that provide us with dairy and other things we get to eat. Watching for days flocks of birds migrating south. KNOE Woods in Monroe, Louisiana. The dark night sky. The horny toads and the Flintstones in the West Texas desert. What does it mean for me to become a contemporary witness? And a contemporary witness, I believe, is, is a witnessing that is a, a mental, emotional, physical, relational process. And I think what we did now, like what you invoked now, is also looking, because I grieve only when there is a relation to whatever is meaningful, and, and I believe the first step is to see, am I defended against the current reality or am I able to really allow that reality to sink into my body? Because my body is the closest nature to my experience. So my body is water, carbon, minerals. My body is the planet. And I believe we sometimes live in a notion as if human beings were on the planet, but actually we are not just on the planet, we are the planet. So there's this separation between us and the planet. I don't know what that means. So like when the inside, when I at least notice and I hear news, I hear people speak here, I hear you speak and I see how much can I be a participant in your reality? How much can I be a participant in the reality that I encounter all over the world? So I think that's the first place to find out not what we see, but what's the seeing. Am I looking at something that's outside of me or is what I witness something that is part of me? Am I part of because otherwise I end up in all kinds of ideas and projections onto the things it, themselves. But I think before I ask myself what do I see is from which place am I looking? And sometimes it's going to be really hard to look. 
And so maybe that's just something to start with. Where am I looking from? Just picking up on what you said, Thomas, I want to take it even further and, and maybe suggest that it's not even that we are witnessing, we are being witnessed, we are being witnessed by Gaia now and being called to wake up by this planet that we are a part of and that habit that we have of kind of stepping back and looking, seeing is one of the things that's breaking down in this time when everything is falling apart because we can't see where we're going and that habit is keeping us from being her, being part of the creative urge to embody the life force of this planet that we are already part of. Am I making sense? So this is part of the big change to be it together, to be in it together, to not differentiate, step back, look, see, figure out, because that's where the habit takes us, is up into our heads to try to figure out and come up with something. And that's just prolonging the pain. So anyway, I speak, I want to just bring something here (laughs) that has been here for me since I was invited to join this little group here, which is to be the woman in this exalted arrangement of awake and beautiful, beloved men. And to just, I guess, name the fact that Many of us in this room and in the world, maybe all of us, have suffered some form of abuse. That's that abuse, and this is my experience. So that experience of of the abuse that we have inflicted upon each other and upon the earth is what actually connects us to each other and to the earth in these times. And we know with what was said yesterday in that reminder that there are these many, many, many generations in us that we carry forward of the trauma and the experience of the suffering that is present in our world, passed down in our cells. These are the same cells that feel what's happening to the frogs and the glaciers and the the fires There's no separation. But we don't want to carry forward that wound anymore, do we? We don't want to keep perpetuating this abuse and this greed, power, delusion. (laughs) So one of the things we talked about yesterday in coming into this moment is the 
opportunity of the sacred, why partly we did this little offering to create a sense of a container that is holding us so that we have the potential to enter into sacred time, being together in a way that acknowledges all of this with every cell of our experience, acknowledges the need, deep, deep need for healing and the love that is motivating us in everything that we do. And in that place, when we stop, even in the face of the tremendous urgency and desperation that we feel, and take another breath and just return to what we know, because we all know that truth. From there is where the miracles are where anything is possible and we can see with different eyes than the habitual ones that, you know, that really aren't taking us where we need to go. So that's my prayer. I want to say this, that uh, in many senses, this is a funeral service. And as we held the portraits of the beings that we feel a sense of loss for. I felt this, this is a funeral service. And this is climate activism that doesn't fit into our models of justice making. You see, as a recipient of benevolence coming from imperialistic powers, as a citizen of the so-called global south, I have, I have a BS. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm so much a choir boy that I can't even bring myself to say bullshit. Oh, I just said it. (laughs) But I have a way of sniffing out, and I think it's shared by people who look like me, when justice comes along, swashbuckling justice, wanting to save the day. Most of our models of justice making, for instance, now, will say it's about inclusivity. Let's bring more people in, right? Let's bring more people in so that more people can sit at the table. But we know in a way that is hard to articulate that whether you bring people in or leave them out, the architecture of exclusivity remains. If you open the door or you shut the door, the door is still there. So we're itching, we're aching for a deeper sense of Because we notice that justice is part of the furniture of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so we are aching in ways that our tears become the libation. We're aching for, for something deeper than the story of access, the story of transcendence, the story of getting it right, the story of justice and, and coming out true on the other side. Let me tell you a brief story of loss, and it comes from Brazil. I was in Brazil last year in November, and I walked in the favelas in Rio, 
a tale of two cities, you know, but I don't want to go into that. In the favela, I was taken through this uh, beautiful neighborhood where teachers were working with young people to make crafts, to make things, you know, out of a, a little boy, for instance, made a camera out of trash, you know, and showed it to me. And it was beautiful, the abundance and creativity in a place of abandonment, in a place that is beyond the state, the state of anomie. And as I was going through and appreciating the works of art in front of me, I saw a rag doll. Now, I'm not too fascinated with dolls. And I said, okay. And I went on. And then this woman grabbed my hand and pulled me back as if she knew this was going to be a moment. And she said, do you know what this is? And I said, it's a doll. And she says, no, it's not just a doll. It's a biome. And I said, what did you say? You know, she said, it's a biome. Now, the reason why I was shocked by that is because my father's name is Abayami, and my son's name is Abayami. And Abayami is a Yoruba word. It's a story, not a word. We don't have, our names are stories. For instance, my name, Adebayo, means my father came home and met joy. My name, Akomalafe, means one who teaches others the good life. Abayami means they thought they buried me, but they did not realize that I'm a seed. So, what's the story? How come this doll is named Abayami? What's the big, I don't understand. Why is it called Abayami? And she told me a story of profound loss, you know, of loss and grief. And, yeah, let me just get into the story. During the transatlantic slave trade, during those times of deep loss and destruction where people were forcefully taken from their homes, where home seemed to eat, to cave in on itself and eat up its own children. A mother took her child into the ship, as the story goes, and her child, as you might expect, was crying and was not going to be comforted by anything. Of course, we can't even imagine the level of suffering under those conditions. And she held her child, but the child would not keep still. And she kept on trying to comfort the child, you know, and the child would not stop crying. And um, our trickster god, whose name is Eshu, who now lives in Brazil, and who I hear is actually the uh, founder of hip-hop, <laughs> and inspired the Washington Monument. Because one of the uh, stories about Eshu is that he, he blurs the boundary between the feminine and the masculine. He breaks through all binaries. He's the embodiment of non-duality, if you will. And so he has a vagina and a very erect penis. And his penis traveled around the world with the um, slave captors. And it became the Washington Monument. So you guys, <laughs> you know. We inherited that one, yeah. huh? <laughs> Don't tell anyone I told you that. Um, and, and so Eshu inspired this act of libation, if you will. And he whispered to this woman, as the legend goes, and the woman took her dress and tore it into her black cloth. It was black, and she tore the, the fabric, and she weaved a rag doll out of it. And, and 
because the child was comforted in that moment, she named that doll Abayomi. And I like to say we're not only in the Anthropocene, we're in the Abayomi scene. And that is a way of noticing that power is not as stable as we think. You know, the models that we have for approaching the Anthropocene is to face the future. But I learned from people around the world, including my people, that to be serious about this is to face the past. But I don't even think that's quite the case. I think time is not as linear as facing the future or facing the past. We're dealing with the intractability of time. Mm -hmm. That time is messy and slushy. It's not even circular. It spills multiple temporalities filling into each other and touching each other. Like Charles's model of congregating viruses just coming to reassure us that we're in stable ground. Time is messier than we think. And so I think it's touching time and noticing that power isn't stable. It's not about being included. Our politics is, of course, built, because it's the best we can do, I think, at this point in time, is built around representational dynamics. The more people who get to be represented, the more we feel just with ourselves. But something deeper, if I dare say deeper, something queer disturbs those models. And it showed up in Abayomi through that ragdoll. And the ragdoll is now a symbol of activism, underground activism in Brazil. It's now a symbol of power. It's a noticing that this is a time of loss, yes. But like proper Yoruba funerals, we know there's a party somewhere. Yeah, let me just stop there for now. see if any of you young sages here would like to share something. What do you see? You see way further than we see. What is for you this time? Um, I think that in this day and age, a lot of the world is looking at the youth because we're coming together and we're trying to make a change because our future is so uncertain. And I think that's really beautiful, but I think it's really important to not just look at the youth and instead us all come together and not put this intense pressure on us. Um, and I think it's also important that we realize that the way that we live is not sustainable whatsoever and that it takes big, personal, and global changes for us to actually make a difference. And that means giving up things that you love, and that means completely altering your life. And I think that that's extremely hard for people to do because they're not used to that idea. But it's a time for us all to come together and to collectively make a change. And we saw that on September 20th with the climate, the worldwide climate strike, which was beautiful. But it's, we need that every day. We need change among us every single day because we are the ones that have created this crisis, not the other species. And the other species are the ones that are getting so affected. And we need to be responsible and intelligent and own up to our mistakes like we learned when we were little and make a change.
Sometimes I feel that everything that is happening on earth right now is a result of us not being connected with our souls anymore. Because if we were just aware that what is happening around us is also happening inside of us, we would just react. And if we were eating things that were alive, not as animals, but that Uh, plant with light in it like we don't eat things that have light in it anymore so it's just we don't connect with the nature we don't connect with the earth so we just don't understand and if we don't understand and we don't want to realize that what what's happening and it's just a result of that what is happening inside of us and we just don't want to see that we or burning inside of us in a sense and if, and if we're not understanding that we are burning we won't, we won't do anything about like the earth you know, so. there's a word that I found that completely changed my life and it's atomania and it means the sense that the future is arriving ahead of schedule and When I first found this word, I thought it meant fear of what was coming, of fearing the future, fearing the environment, of just how bad it's all going to be or what we think. But I realized that it's not fear. It's just the sense of it. It's just awareness. And realizing that, it almost changed my perception where it means opportunity. It means that we can change the future. And it's just being aware that it is happening now, that the future is now, and the way I see it, the only way to change the future is in our present, and it starts with us today, with our decisions, with our thoughts, with our actions. Wow. <laughs> I don't have words. <laughs> been so conditioned to suppress it, I just wanted to share it with you. I do feel we are at a funeral. Thank you. First comes to my mind is that when we feel connected to what's being shared right now, is that like I'm grieving when I feel connected and when I care. And I believe that we more and more feel inside of ourselves that the change that is happening either... It's not, I think there's grief on the one side, but it also triggers more and more fear. So we are sitting on, on more emotions that are coming up, most probably collectively. And, and I think the beauty of grief is the connection to, to bonding and to deep relatedness. And then when we feel those relations are changing, I think it's an, it's an awakening movement. But um, I want to speak to something else that came up now as I was listening. Um, that I said yesterday that when I sit here or when I look at you, you are happening in my perception. So you are in, in my body you are affecting my inner world right now. Mm. 
And the more I open myself to that, and I really allow myself to feel that in myself, then I have a physical, emotional, mental experience of you, which is deeply intimate. And I believe that nature, for all of us, for thousands of years, was a pretty constant internalized experience so that we heard the birds, we felt the trees, we felt the soil, we felt the insects that we are missing more and more. We felt so many things that we are missing more and more. So nature is not just happening out there. Nature is deeply wired in my brain and it's sitting for thousands of years as a pretty constant experience in us. And I believe we, we start to feel that nature within us and around us starts to shake. The pretty constant quality of it is changing. And I believe there's a cascade of processes attached to that that affects the whole architecture of who we are as human beings. And I believe one element of grief is that that architecture is changing. Because it's, there's nothing just outside, where it's, it's all entangled. And I believe for, that's why I think communities like here, and also practices like here are so important. Because if the architecture of evolution starts to be rewritten in us, one element that is crucial is presence. Because if I, in my being, am just attached to my sense perception, my whole world will fall apart. And that's why presence is the, the possibility to allow evolution and life to rewrite itself in conscious awareness. And I think that's why and for this, we need each other. I think we need to be together in that shared state of presence because the more the world's going to change, it's not going to change just around us. It's going to change in the very part of me that is perceiving it, that is it. And I think that can be deeply scary. And, and there's another part that uh, relates to that emotional quality is that when we are sitting here and we are together in a very present, loving, connected environment, many of the best functions of us are turned on. But if that cascade of processes will start to fall apart, the most, the most needed functions in a crisis are the most likely to disintegrate. And I think we just need to be aware that when a crisis is really coming, we might not be able to think what we are thinking in this room. Yeah. We might not be able to feel what we feel with each other in this room. And there might be suddenly a, a separation. I experienced this some years ago. I was in a war situation where in Israel there was a big war and the missiles were coming to Tel Aviv and to Jerusalem. And, and you could really feel how with every day in this threat with, with alarms and sirens and everything going off periodically, suddenly the, the fragmentation and the polarization in the culture 
was very strong and that's a culture that's used to war situations. And I think for us that's something that starts with grief and fear, but it might be that in a blink of an eye we are not able to be the ones that we are today because that higher functions, they're much younger than me wanting to survive. And so what is really very important is that level of presence and that willingness to be in the difficulty and not trying to get away from it. But that's why I loved what, what you said before, like that willingness to be in the disruption, but to bring presence to it, because that's what helps us to rewrite those attachments to the current evolutionary state. So I found this, I think, yeah. And maybe one last thing, our capacity to create safety together is super important. Like relational safety, to create relational safety through real care and real compassion and that really feeling each other is such an amazing capacity. And I think many people awakening around the world are the ones that acquire the capacities to do that. So I think safety is a very important. Um, there's a lot of talk about climate change and what can we do and uh, what's the solution and how do we resolve this. And then there's talk about, it's not about the solution or resolution. It's about being with it and staying with it. However, uh, I think sometimes we are conditioned to imagine a solution based on what's being repeated to us, how solution is defined. And I think that sometimes we forget that we could be the medicine of the earth by our togetherness and our joy. That could be the medicine for the earth. Uh, it's not for me, you know, not only about being responsible, only about recycling your trash. Whether or not it gets recycled or not, it's, a, it's another story. We do it anyway because we're here to represent ourselves in the highest virtue. But I also believe that our frequency affects the earth. And if we could celebrate our life and stick with that, regardless of everything else, and be with it and embrace the good. And I know that a lot of people feel that it's... Uh, funeral. I also believe that there's a lot of life around and you don't have to ignore one and embrace one. I think it's, I think it's all. Yeah. Um, I think it's the Inuit people that have a whaling tradition called Katsiluni in which during the time of the season when they sing to the whales, they need a new song to do it. They don't just repeat the old hits, you know, uh, like play up the best songs, but they look for a new song. But the process of finding the song is difficult. So what they do is they go to a very dark house and they turn out all the lights and they sit in the darkness 
and they wait for something to happen. And they tell stories of beauty and loss and grief and gratitude. And from the sharing, the lyrics of the song yet to be, the song to come, emerges. And that's how a new song is produced. And so they call it Katsulini, which means sitting in the dark and waiting for something to come. I think death needs a new cosmology. The metaphysics that inspires a Yoruba appreciation of death, for instance, is not a drop-off point. It's not a black hole where things cease to be. And I think in some ways the sciences are beginning to catch on with that. You might have heard recently, I think it was last year, but it was obscured by the report from the IPCC about 12 more years for us to live, everyone run, you know. Um, the discovery of what they call a deep biosphere, 25 billion tons of carbon just beneath the earth, just a world of species and beings and bacteria or microbial forms that we have no name for. They gave it a name, zombie bacteria. <laughs> it doesn't exactly live in the way we think of life, but yet it's not dead. It's somewhere in between. And I think that's already a deterritorialization of the binary that exists between life and death. It's one we have learned to intuit already. That if you want to live well, then keep death close. And so we scar our bodies. And the scarification of our faces and our bodies is to remind us of the intimacy of grief and joy. The intimacy of shadow and light. And this is the invitation of saying hope already includes a hopelessness. And hopelessness is already a form of hoping. And grieving is already of giving thanks and showing gratitude for that which has been lost. So grief is not a private event. I think it's the flame of leaves. I think when leaves open in the morning to the sun, that's a form of grieving. I think the world is a grieving all the time. And the land is an archive of loss. And to touch the land is to perform this loss is to perform this grieving together with the world which is a form of divinity which is a form of activism which is the sacred to me the sacred is that which moves not a thing not a fetishized ritual but the fact that we move the fact that loss is always happening and so I just want to say something about power so I deeply appreciate the fact that people are rising up in the world today to stand up and speak truth to power. I mean, Charles and I have discussions. No, we, we haven't had that discussion in a long time. But we've had a good discussion about Trump, for instance. And we know where I come from, that sometimes you need someone like Trump to rise for us to discover ourselves again, as if for the first time. So there is this sense, beautiful sense, in which people are marching and Greta led the march, millions of people around the world marching, and I think four million or five million people in hundreds of countries marching to speak out about climate change. As beautiful as that is, I think there is a sense in which that performs a poverty of power. Here is four million people appealing to a handful of legislators to listen to them, a handful of industries. And 
the story that emerges or secretes from that performance is that enchantment is in short supply, that we need to march down the road in order to get our voices heard, that enchantment is down the street, power is in city hall. My people speak about power being everywhere. I could call it the Teslaization of space. How Tesla said a space of air is already filled with electricity. But our architecture does not know how to notice that. And so we isolate power in different places. What would it be like to treat grieving as power? What would it be like to treat loss and a shared sense of hopelessness, if you will, as a beautiful way of responding to this monster, to this phenomena that is greater than language? What if these are the forms of decomposing and falling away that we're being invited to embrace? Um, So, one thing that struck me throughout this conference and and life in general is how difficult it can be to be good. As we've talked about, it seems like so much of it is our presence and how we understand our internal story. And at the same time, sometimes it it does seem pretty clear-cut that there are things we can stand for and not stand for. When I had my first non-dual sort of experience or transformation, I think that first is that bringing my own light, bringing my own joy to people is almost always good, even in the face of evils or what we perceive as evils. The second big thing that stood out to me, even across, I spent years traveling around and kind of trying to jump into what are the evils, where are the places we can help, going into the slums in India, going into earthquake sites, and really finding it's pretty complex. Even in the slums, there's a lot of happiness, there's a lot of joy. Um, It's pretty incredible, and I almost feel sorry for some of the people who are not brought up in that context that miss a lot of those really important elements. But one of the things, I guess, that's stuck with me over the years is that the circumstance of animals and of factory farming seems to me to be one place where there is no defensibility. It appears to me that way. I may be mistaken. It may be more complex. Um, So my question to the panel is, is it compatible to have an awareness of non-duality, of interbeing, and still eat factory farmed animals or to be complicit in that process? Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not in this whole thing to demonstrate that I'm good. My goal is not to be a good person. There's something else that I'm serving that might conform to many of our ideas about what it is to be a good person, but the quest to be a good person, I think it comes from a deeply seated wound in our culture, in most cultures of civilization, the wound of self-rejection. So instead, I try to put my attention on what it is that I am actually serving, serving life. Sometimes it's clear to me what choice is in service to life. Other times it is not clear. 
because my mind has an account of how the world works that is not always in conformity with my heart's understanding of how the world works or what is in service to life. Sometimes my heart will have me, will call me to do something that my mind cannot rationalize as this is going to help change the world. I was at a climate gathering, a conference, and a very well-known climate crusader was speaking to the assembled, and he said, you people are doing the most important thing that any human beings have ever done. You are saving the world. And I thought, really? Is what you're doing on your climate march more important than the couple that I know back home who have adopted a foster child who was terribly neglected and abused, who are not getting any money for doing this, who are not getting celebrated and applauded for saving the world, who, are, who don't even get to keep the child necessarily. They're pouring their love, their time. They don't have time to be politically engaged. They're pouring their love into this being with no recompense that we could measure or that we could rationalize as, yes, they're helping to save the world. And I thought, you know, I, I just refuse to live in a universe in which that is less important. And I need a cosmology, a metaphysics, that validates my heart's knowing that these people are contributing just as much, if not more, than anybody else to the well-being of this planet. For that to be true, then what I have received about how this world works through my education must be very, very narrow, must be very incomplete. And I want to expand our, to expand and, and transform our mind's understanding of how this reality works so that the making of Abayami dolls so that we can place that in our narrative of what's important and so that we can listen to the call that will have us do the things that don't make sense in the paradigm of control. The story of the world, the theory of change that we have inherited from the modern tradition is that something changes when you exert a force on the world. Therefore, if you want to make a big change, you have to muster a big force under your command. You have to have a big platform. You have to have a lot of money. Then you can make a big difference. It has to be visible. It has to go viral. Something it has to scale. But isn't it the mentality of scale that is at the root or deep near the root of the problem to begin with? Scale which makes the world into a bunch of standard units and then applies a formula to each place, stamping a design on many places. And maybe I'll, I'll link this to despair a little bit, which I think is an escape, in a way, from grief, where it is a diversion of the energy of grief that comes from, it's not just loss, but it's loss of something you love. And it doesn't necessarily know what to do about it. Like, what can you do if your loved one dies? What can you do about it? You can't do anything about it. And, and, and we recognize on that, that any attempt to do something about it is, is an escape from it. It's just there. 
So that energy, what can we do about it? Okay, maybe we can do something, but maybe none of that is going to work. And so then we go to despair, which is basically the result of a story about what is possible. And that story is based on the same mindset and the same set of assumptions that generates the problem to begin with. Yes, the situation is impossible if it is up to us with the existing technologies of control. It's already too late. But when we understand that we have a potent ally called life, then it's never too late. Life, when we, let me put it this way, when we understand that the tendency of the universe is toward life, that the purpose or the, the destination of the universe is to become more and more alive, and that every being that's ever been born into this world has a role to play in the coming alive of the world and the coming alive of the universe, then we're no longer at war with entropy, no longer thinking that progress comes through the expansion of the ordered, domesticated, controlled realm at the expense of the wild. We're no longer at odds with the world. We have an ally. This ally is only visible when we look for it. It comes from a way of seeing. And grief also, we have access to grief only when we can see the loss as the loss of something that we love and understand it as the loss of something that we love. Cynthia mentioned, and this is commonplace now, that what we're doing to the planet as a society is exactly the same as what we have been doing to women. The abuse is the same on both levels. And I think that the reason for the abuse is also the same. The abuse of women is only possible through their objectification, through their reduction to something less than a full being. The abuse of the world is also made possible by its objectification, making it into resources, making it into a thing, making it into something not fully alive. So the healing of both forms of abuse comes from a different way of seeing that is foreign to anybody who's been educated in our culture. One of the Kogi diagnosed our condition accurately, I think, when he said of the destruction, the wetlands draining happening in Colombia, he said, if you knew she could feel, you would stop. That the problem is that you're not feeling. If you knew she could feel, you would stop. In that sentence is also a profound affirmation of human nature. It says, I know you. I know why you're doing this. It's because you're not feeling. It's not because you're bad. And you have to strive harder to be good and to overcome your evil in the internalized mirror of the war on nature. No, I know you. If you knew she could feel, you would stop. So maybe part of our activism is to reconnect us with our ability to feel, to ask, why are we not feeling as a collective? Partly it's because of a story about what matter is and what the world is that casts us, that maroons us alone in a world of other. So part of it is a story, but a story is never just a story. A story is part of a state of being. It's like the one layer of a whole state of being. And so why else are we not feeling? It's also because of trauma. It's because of the ways that we've responded by learning not to feel when it was too much to feel. 
I'll leave it there. What I hear in these offerings are like prayers to me. And for me, prayer is just another word for intention. So we have these hopes and dreams and loves and cares and in that is what motivates us. And when, for example, you mentioned about the factory farmed animals, what I hear is a calling in you. And each of us has something that we care about that is bringing us to the edge in this time and we're all needed because we're all a little tiny part of that whole entire web of life. There's no separation. So this is our moment to claim that. If it's factory farm animals or the frogs in the ecosystems, for me, you know, it's been taking these little holy vessels I got from some old llama in Nepal and planting them in the earth. And it's like, really? That's going to make a difference? Well, actually it has, you know. And it's, it's digging a hole in the ground, like burying something that, you know. But it's a seed. It's a little doll and it's a seed. It's filled with all kinds of prayers. And that's so powerful. So... We never know what it's going to take. We never know. And I was thinking of a moment that I had about a year ago. I was walking up the path near my house on one of my, you know, getting out into her. (laughs) And the wind was blowing like it is today so hard. I was up on a hill blowing in in this wind. And it felt like the winds of change, you know, just coming through. And I had this moment of almost like collapsing into facing and accepting maybe we're not going to make it and surrendering into that grief of wow we really might not make it and it was not easy to admit and the winds were blowing and blowing and blowing and almost like blowing me over and I heard one of my teachers say stand up sausage which is what he called me And so I stood up into the wind and I could barely stand. And I felt like the winds of change were just going to blow me over, you know, and what was I going to do anyway? And then I turned because it was time to go and I turned to the path going back down. And at that point, the wind was at my back. And I realized I had all that at my back. And I was going forward with the force of all of that behind me. And, you know, I didn't know where I was going, but it was sort of like everything is possible. And so I want to leave you with that. And our togetherness, our connection, you know, is kind of like that wind at our back. So we may not know exactly what it is, but if we stop and take a breath and remember the moment, you know, we'll be able more and more to answer the call that's for us and to feel. The other thing is, When you make an offering, you know, it's like you're feeding the spirit of what it is that you want to see in the world. So let's feed that. Let's nourish that with our actions and our love and our connection. Right? Maybe so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been libating. 
when I was invited to give a libation, I didn't realize that the libation would continue in form of tears that I couldn't control, and I don't know the, the source of it. But I do realize that sometimes it is the case that we see clearer when our eyes are glistening with tears, and that in some form, we are all offering libations. I remember my wife right now giving milk to our daughter. I realized that that process of breastfeeding our child is a libation, literally of drawing down of fluid and milk to nurture. And who says that's not a form of activism? Mm. Um, I think basically that in order to find our way, we must become lost, generously lost. Like my younger brother said this morning, how the maps are often mistaken for the terrain. I think we have over time infected each other with particular ways of knowing. Just like we share chicken pox in India, we share particular ways and modes of knowing the world with others. Our bodies secrete these ways of knowing. And so we have this empiricism, this parenthetical space of knowing that says knowing and the world that appears to your five senses is the world that is real. And other senses of the real are deconstructing that. Other ways of knowing are haunting the stable models we have. And so it's a time of getting lost together. One of my mentors, Karen Barad, will call it falling together apart. A falling together apart. It's a past that is yet to come. It is a touching each other. It is an orgasmic opening to that which cannot be said. And so I leave you with that, that there is power here. Even here, there is power. Adding to the past that is yet to come, I will also invoke the future that we remember. Hmm. You know, hope has a bad name these days. It's equated with fantasy and delusion. But authentic hope is the recognition of a possibility that comes from outside of what you know. And I would say that the future reaches into the present. It sends its tendrils into the present through experiences that we have, extraordinary experiences, experiences of a loved one dying, perhaps, experiences of generosity, of forgiveness, of healing medically impossible conditions, all of these miracles. A miracle is simply something that is impossible from a given old story, but possible within a new one, which means that they are also the outreach of a new story or a different story into our own world. And they seem irrational. They seem like something impossible, yet it happened. And our discomfort with that, because they are disruptive, they're saying that reality isn't what you thought, therefore you are not what you thought. And I think we are at a time, and this is where despair can take us, of opening to this larger reality, to this future that we remember as a home, and to the expanded creative possibility that lives there. So I'm saying let's bring those data points in. Like if you are in despair over the fate of the planet and climate, 
Does your despair include that? Let's bring in all of the data points. Mm. Those that we have cast out because they hurt too much and those that we have cast out because they feel too good. They promise too much. And maybe it's a little safer not to hope that much, not to let in that possibility because what if it gets betrayed? Yeah. Thank you. So two minutes ago, I thought, I'm not going to say anything. Everything has been said. <laughs> Now, after listening to you, I have to say something. And I think that in itself is a part of what you said right now, that when we are together in community, we are co-creating something bigger together. And that's one thing. And then I'm teaching some classes with William Urey, a mediator that mediates big political conflicts. And I said recently to William, William, why are you spending your time in rooms where people yell at you, they have conflicts, they don't know how to get along? Why don't you do something that is fun? <laughs> Or when I have been in very, very deep, dark processes around collective trauma where we really deal with deep, deep, difficult moments. And then I said to William, but The truth is, when you are in these rooms, you are at your best. Because you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And that's your purpose, and that's your highest joy. And then he said something beautiful, and he deals with governments and all kinds of like, important moments. And he says, and in the moment something changes in the room, the room lights up, and there is real light in the room. And I think this is an amazing thing that life wants to heal. The self-healing mechanism of life wants to heal. And that's what I heard you say before, that there is a kind of a, a tailwind that the answer, in the mystical traditions we say the, the fish of the answer is always swimming around our legs. So the light that carries that future that you spoke about is always with us in the room. It's just about us to see. And so maybe we leave it there. I think I just wanted to underline that even if you're true to that which we're supposed to be doing, there is light all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was Bayo Akomalafe, Charles Eisenstein, Thomas Hubel, and Cynthia Jures speaking at the 2019 SAND conference. And that is it for this Magical Mystery Tour. As always, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. And now is a great time to start dreaming of a new world as we head into unknown territory. We may not get everything we want, but you've got to start by dreaming. Let yourself dream freely and use your imagination to its fullest capacity. And enjoy it. Enjoy this opportunity to engage in this creative process. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. Get what you need